Welcome. You're listening to The Hill by Thieves Theater. I'm Gabriella. I'm Nick, and we're thieves. Well, not exactly thieves, but beginning in 81, we called ourselves Thieves Theater. But we didn't just do theater. We also did conceptual guerrilla art projects, or what we call paratheatrical work. Our goal was to disrupt and alter the social and political status quo. Which means we just like putting sticks in anthills and watching the ants scurry and adjust to their new reality, their new status quo. So in this episode, we want to start by talking about a word that has become a cultural battleground, and that word is woke, especially as it relates to the concept of cultural appropriation. Presidential candidate Ron DeSantis famously said recently, Florida is where woke goes to die and warns that woke could destroy the U.S. Right. (laughs) Can of worms. Yep. The topic could be its own podcast. You could do an exegesis on the term woke alone, which, by the way, is cultural appropriation itself. Right. Because it's derived from uh, African-American vernacular from the 1930s. And woke, like the term politically correct has gone from self-descriptive by the left to becoming a pejorative on the right in the culture war. Oh, yes. I I mean, it's an insult now, right? Becoming enlightened is not something you're supposed to strive for anymore. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, yeah, can of worms. Um, So we're, for that reason, going to stay pretty narrow on it and talk mostly about our own journey towards awareness as it relates to two white people putting up a replica of a Lakota teepee. And I say towards awareness because none of us is born woke, right? We don't suddenly wake up one day enlightened about social inequalities. No, it's a process for the entire culture, for the species. It evolves. And as individuals, we each have our own levels of tolerance, ranging from total resistance, like DeSantis and his crew, right? Who are determined to conserve. Right, conservatives, right? Right. They don't like change. No, they want to conserve the old ways, the myths of history we cling on to, on one hand. And then on the other hand, to what we now call, I guess, woker than itis or virtue signaling and creating what comedians are facing today, which they say, a world so woke, you can't make a joke. <laughs> right. right. Well, I myself am not going to move to Florida anytime soon. Well, me neither. Ho- hopefully we're not going to elect Florida to represent the country as well, right? Right. On the other hand, I have to say that I wholeheartedly applaud, for example, Trader Joe's. About a year ago, they sustained all kinds of protests because they have a beer, a Corona-like beer, that they call Trader Jose's. And people in a knee-jerk kind of way uh, called them racist and demanded that they change that name. And Trader Joe's was about to apologize and to comply. And then a week later, a spokesperson came out and said, "Mm, no, this was supposed to be funny marketing and in in good humor and 
We believe that that's what it is. And we're not going to change anything. And I was relieved, yeah. you know? I mean, but erecting a teepee or even camping overnight in a teepee in a recreational area, glamping as they call it, mm-hmm. nowadays, although it might be fun, right? It's not um, seen in our awoken, somewhat awoken world as something you should do. It, it, it's an example of cultural appropriation. Yeah. And rightfully so. Yeah, I mean, I, they're all. I yeah. agree with that. For absolutely. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And they're. They're actually closing down or in the process of closing down campgrounds like that, different. Right. So this now established attitude and awareness is much different than it was in the years surrounding 1990 when we erected the teepee. Back then, uh, we knew we were erecting a, quote, sacred hoop, right? Uh, We knew its significance, to many of the Plains Indians, especially the Lakota. The circle, the sacred hoop, is of central importance. In the book Black Elk Speaks, which we referenced a lot, you know, we, we had copied and even, even paraphrased certain patches, passages from that book, often to residents and visitors. Uh, for instance, a quote like this, everything an Indian does is in a circle, And that is because the power of the world always works in circles and everything tries to be round. In the old days, when we were a strong and happy people, all our power came to us from the sacred hoop of the nation. And so long as the hoop was unbroken, the people flourished. Yeah, so, you know, our intent was pure, but we were not yet woke to all the implications of our actions. So we... We weren't looking for permission when we put up the teepee, but honestly, just thinking of finding local Native Americans who might join us in the action. Exactly. That we were doing. Yeah, that's what we were looking for. We had grown up in the tradition of popular media, like everybody else, that had treated Native American culture as if it was in the public domain, as if you could simply draw from the reservoir of stereotyped images and without any kind of limitation or concern. Yeah. You know, but I mean, the lands had been lost, the genocide had happened, and the cultures were decimated for the most part. And one of the last things that was left to be appropriated was the culture, the native culture, which is, you know, their very dignity in a way. Uh, And that's where cultural appropriation comes in. Right. So we want to talk about our own individual evolution towards wokeness in parallel with the change that happened in culture itself. Uh, No, we would never erect that teepee today, but at the same time, uh, we got nothing but support from our artistic peers and art institutions like Creative Time and art publications like Art Forum. Right. And it, it has a lot to do with how we all grew up. For instance... I grew up in Germany and didn't move to the States until I was 11. Now, (laughs) you might be wondering what Germany has to do with Indians, uh, but you would be shocked and surprised. Even World War II soldiers were confused when they got to Germany about why why the Germans were so enamored with Indians and Indian culture, right? And that is because of an author called Karl May. 
So Carl May, it's spelled M-A-Y. And, uh, and he is still hugely influential to this day. He was a 19th century author who wrote a series of adventure stories set in the Old West called Winnetou and Old Shatterhand. So Winnetou was an Apache chief and Old Shatterhand was his white German blood brother. And everybody in my generation read these books. Right. And in, 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 in for many generations, like 200 years of influence, uh, Carl May exerted on German culture. In my case, I even listened to vinyl records that, you know, were sort of the, that time's version of audiobooks, um, the stories being enacted. And, uh, and of course, I dressed up as an Indian for Fasnacht, which is the German Mardi Gras. This was before Germany appropriated Halloween. Well, <laughs> Halloween was not a thing back in my day. <laughs> right. And wasn't Halloween appropriated from, where was it appropriated from? Oh, right, right, right. Uh, from the, the Celtics. Or, I'm not. <laughs> yes, from the Boston Celtics. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, it was a, it was a Celtic tradition. Right, yeah. right. So um, ever... Since this advent of Carl May's stories, Germany has had a huge fascination with Native American culture, uh, including Hitler was monumentally influenced by Carl May. Einstein said he took refuge in those stories when he needed to shut down and you know turn his mind off. And to this day, there are hobby clubs where people play cowboys and Indians and they, they, you know, they dress up. And as of 2019, I saw this statistic, up to 100,000 people, Germans, a year participate in these cowboy and Indian hobby clubs. Yeah. So uh, shocking, right? I mean, interesting that the Germans are such... I don't know why. It's just weird, but it's a fact. Well, I, I should uh, say how how I grew up, and in this within this realm. Um, yes, your story is much better. <laughs> well, not or worse, um, <laughs> but you know, it's it's probably closer to the typical American story of yeah. people my age and how they grew up. Um, I I was a little atypical. I grew up on a farm. We grew up basically living off the land. But um, in the winter, of course, when there wasn't any uh, crops to plant and harvest, we would uh, supplement our income, well, our food, by going hunting and uh, trapping. So I, I remember even as a kid, our basement was full of uh, hides, you know, of muskrat and mink, raccoon or whatever that would be sold later on. They were drying out in the <sighs> basement. Yeah. Sigh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we grew up in an area where there were corporations like Texaco and Union Oil who owned vast property that was just left as is. And we sort of appropriated all that land as ours. Meaning you took down the no trespassing signs. Yes, yeah. yes. We, did, we took down the no trespassing signs and then became the guardians or controller of the whole thing, keeping everybody else who came in to hunt or trap or whatever out, 
you know. We used to, it's funny because my father used to call them uh, Nimrods, <laughs> which was, you know, I don't, it, it's weird that he would have that reference. It's from the Bible, but he would, these Sunday, these weekend hunters and stuff would call them Nimrods. And then on the trap line, which was on the Desplaines River, and a uh, property that once my relatives had lived on, uh, again, was now private property that we co-opted. And, uh, you know, we would steal the traps of anybody else who came in to try to trap them. Oh, wow. This was like a war. <laughs> well, it was, you know, because it was a livelihood, right? Right. And um, so... Uh, and trying to feed six kids, right? right. In yeah. your dad's case. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, we... Um, we fashioned ourselves as if we were living in another time. We were hunters and trappers living off the land in our minds, our mythology anyway. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, I grew up like everybody else, which is playing cowboys and Indians. And on the farm, we had like 12, 15 cousins who lived on the farm with us. There was aunts and uncles, like an extended family. They'd all had built houses on the farm itself. Mm -hmm. So we would all play together. And uh, the thing that happened was that my, my mother and a couple of my aunts each year would build elaborate Halloween costumes for us. With that, they had a dress rehearsal in September when the annual uh, Keepatal Days parade happened in Lamont, the closest uh, town to us, mm -hmm. which was, I don't, I don't know, maybe maybe three, four miles, four miles or something. Where, and, where somebody somewhere is now filmed, along with your hometown of Lockport. <laughs> I don't know about that. I do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> nice just, side. Just on. as a, you know, side reference. Right. Point, uh, point of interest. So my father would drive the, um, the tractor and hay rack there for Keep a Day's parade. And uh, we would come up later in the costumes that were being made for Halloween <sighs> and put on displays, right? You know, the, I think the first year was like cowboys and Indians. So there was my father on the tractor dressed as uh, like in a Gene out Autry outfit or something like that, a cowboy mm -hmm. outfit. And my mother was back on the um, hay rack with the rest of us uh, kids. And she was dressed like Pocahontas or whatever. Right? Of course. And then we were variously cowboys and Indians. That, that was one year. That, the year that I want to talk about mostly <laughs> is the year that we put up something. In our head, we had always remembered it as uh, the United... I think I'll walk away for this part. <laughs> Okay, sorry. <laughs> um, we always remembered it as kids as the United Nations float, right? But if I look at the photograph of it now, there's a color photograph or a couple, I think, of, of, the, um, of the parade float. It was um, not nations. <laughs> mm. And mm -hmm. it, was, uh, it was more people, mm. right? <laughs> What you see in there is, uh, for instance, I'm dressed as an Arab. My cousin next to me is the Dutch girl. That's a nation, okay. And uh, the cousin Jimmy is a, um, a Spaniard, right? <laughs> so another nation, good. But now Candy is a, an Eskimo. And, uh, <laughs> or now called Inuit. Yeah, I, I don't think quite a nation yet. Maybe a sovereign nation. But Tribe. Not, yeah. And uh, people, right? People. And Sue, my sister Sue, is a Scottish girl. So, you know, Scotland. <laughs> so far, so good. Scotland's not a country, though, a nation. No, it's part of England, isn't it? 
I think so. Of course, it, yes, it's part of the United Kingdom. Yes. Right, right. They want to break away. They want to break So away. they want to be a nation. <laughs> so they, this was, this was um, you know, foreseen then <laughs> that Scotland would be one of the United Nations, uh-huh. right? And then um, I have my, my brother Rick was the Indian boy, uh-huh. right? Because you got to have an Indian. And well, your brother Steve? <laughs> Can't we do, uh, you know, my other cousins first? One was a Hawaiian, uh, which is not a nation, but a state, right? <laughs> and a people, right? And, uh, and then we have uh, one that was a Mexican. So that's a country, Mexico, right? Mm. So, but my brother Steve, uh, who died long ago, uh, he probably wouldn't want to face whatever, especially if he was writing... For office <laughs> politics now or something right but yeah. he was he was dressed as an african uh so africa is not a nation mm-hmm. or a number it's a number of nations mm-hmm. but not one nation mm-hmm. and he was naked except for a a groin a groin no what do you call it groin groin cloth <laughs> is that what you're reaching for loin cloth not groin cloth loin cloth and he had he was all in blackface. All the skin was covered in black makeup, and he had a curly-headed wig yeah. with a bone in it. Justin Trudeau barely survived that. Yeah. And a um, a spear. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, okay. I mean, all right. So I, I mean, uh, yeah. Can we, no, no. What, what do you want to move on? Yes. <laughs> no. 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 I just want to say these are our personal stories, and it they were part and parcel of how everybody grew up and the cultural milieu at the time. Um, you know, but, but you're not done yet. You want to talk about, yeah. I want to talk about Lamont, where it took place. Of course, yes. Where the, Lamont's original name was Kipatal. Kipatal was the name of the tribe or chief that, had the, that the town of Lamont was once occupied by before the white people came, right? Mm-hmm. And um, Lamont, um, <laughs> strangely... I think, had, not so strangely, a lot of sports teams and high school teams had as uh, their mascot, um, they were the Lamont Indians. But they were the Lamont Indians only until 1968. Mm -hmm. And in 1968, they changed their name to the Lamont Indians, for whatever reason. You heard that right. Indians. Right. And um, so the Lamont Indians were was their name until what 2005 or 6 where they, they changed it back to indians but <laughs> they not not getting rid of it altogether they changed it back to indians uh, right. you know with a lot of resistance and controversy yeah right and so um but they kept a mascot which was a, a logo like a lot of the mascots indian mascots are in sports teams or were i should say i don't know if they're around anymore but uh, of caricature of an Indian, mm-hmm. you know, like a awful caricature. Yeah. And um, they didn't get rid of that until 2021. Again, with some controversy. 2021. Yeah. Right. Okay, so that's 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 the thing I grew up in, and I, I mean, we can say, you know, the sins of the father if we want. Yeah. Yet are they inherited? And I think they are. Yes. Yes. But you know, everybody is of their own time, and. There was no, there were no ill intentions by your mom and dad by making that, you know, that's the whole thing, especially in the United States. 
you're very influenced by Hollywood, for example, right? And on that note, we had mentioned in an earlier episode that when we first put up the teepee on Thanksgiving in 1990, coincidentally, simultaneously, that weekend, Dances with Wolves premiered. And Dances with Wolves was revolutionary, not just in its genre, the Western genre, but it was a watershed for Native American actors in film and television. Um, It paid incredible attention to details. Um, More than a quarter of the film was filmed in Lakota with English subtitles. So it was groundbreaking on a number of levels, and it won the Best Picture Oscar among six other Oscars in that following spring in 91. Right, and it was the movie's honest, sympathetic portrayal of Native Americans, which was unlike anything seen before on film. Including uh, Native Americans being played by Native Americans. Right. Right, not white people. Yeah, so it was praised by both Native Americans and critics. And uh, as we know, film as an art form profoundly affects the general public's awareness and attitudes. The whole world, because it's America's chief export, right? right? Hollywood. Of course, Hollywood Westerns, fiction, pretty much shaped what people knew about Native Americans. And not in a good way. Well, Dances and Wolves, but before that, not. Yeah. But there's also a change that was brewing at around that time, 1990, that, um, you know, hadn't reached popular culture as yet. But it was going on in academia and the art world at that time. Exactly. And fiction. Fiction shaped a lot of America's self-image. Uh, for example, at that time, there was an exhibit going on uh, at the Smithsonian, which back then was called the National Museum of American Art. And that exhibit was called The West as America. It opened in March of 91. So, I don't know, five months after we put up the teepee. And it caused a huge stir. Um, the likes of which that museum had not seen in its entire 162-year history at that point. Museum attendance went up by 60% from the year, same time the year before, just to give you an idea of how much attention this exhibit got, right? Yeah, uh, we became aware of it because the peer group we were involved with at the time was not theater, but mostly visual artists. And... The full title of that exhibit was called The West as America, comma, Reinterpreting Images of the Frontier, 1820 to 1920. And as the subtitle denotes, the exhibit re-examined various artworks that depicted the American frontier. Sacrosanct images, right? Right. And I mean, reinterpreting, yeah, re-examining but recontextualizing mostly. Yes. Right? The goal of the curators was to reveal how artists during that period visually revised the conquest of the West in a way that supported the prevailing national ideology at the time, or, you know, manifest destiny. Right. Westward expansion, manifest destiny was the ideology. Yeah. Yeah, it was controversial and got lots of media coverage, as you said. Yeah. Because some saw it as an attempt by curators to dismantle the history and legacy of the American frontier. Yes, because this image of America's collective self is like the backbone. You know, it's sacred. 
And few liked that this mythology of the Old West was being messed with. Predictably, you might say, those on the right, meaning conservatives, um, they wanted to defund the museum at the time. But the problem was that most of what the exhibit was about and portrayed was really hard to argue with, right? Yeah, yeah. For example, one of the best-known artists at the time was Frederick Remington. And most people know the famous painting, Fight for the Water Hole. Well, he never went out west. Like Carl May, never went out west, never went to the States, right? It's all fiction. Yeah, so they, like many other artists back then, imaginatively invented their subjects, right? So Remington himself said, somewhat clumsily, I sometimes feel that I'm trying to do the impossible with my pictures in not having a chance to work direct. But as there is no people, <laughs> such as I paint, it's studio or nothing. <laughs> wow, right? So basically, the whole concept of the American West that the country is so proud of rests on a foundation of the imagination of artists, right? Um, and, and the curators also wanted to just demonstrate how art was being influenced by artists' patronage from capitalists and industrialists. Uh, one wall text read, for it was according to this culture's attitudes, attitudes about race, class, and history, that artists such as Schreivogel and Remington created that place we know as the Old West, end quote. So mostly the curators wanted the audience to question standard interpretations of familiar works of art. They wanted people to see past the actual artworks themselves and into the historical conditions that created those artworks. Yeah, for instance, when the, the historical condition and need was in the phrase, go west, young man, uh, when they want settlers and everyone to go west, Artists represented the Native Americans as noble, you know, no threat. But when what was needed to take their land... Once they were there. Yeah, they yeah. had to now take more land. Then the Native Americans were portrayed as savage. And then finally, at the end, they were then depicted as defeated and... Um, dying. Dying, right. right. And that gets back to an earlier episode where we were talking about Charles Rumsey, the the artist that created the freeze over the Manhattan Bridge, and that sculpture that's at the Brooklyn Museum called The Dying Indian. Uh, I don't think he was part of the Smithsonian exhibit at no, the time, but, but he was part of, again, a prevailing movement in culture, right? Well, well no, an attitude, something that would way the Native Americans were being portrayed, which is... Defeated and defeated dying. Defeated and right, dying, yeah. right, right. So in the curator's words, this exhibition assumes that all history is unconsciously edited by those who make it. Looking beneath the surface of these images gives us a better understanding of why national problems created during that era of Western expansion still affect us today. That yeah. was their goal. Yeah, and all this really re resonated with us at the time. Um, we had contacted uh, Chris, what's his name? Christoph Kohlhofer. Right. Yeah, yeah, we really felt like we were on the pulse of everything, you know? He had an image that we asked him if we could put it make a rubber stamp out of mm -hmm. so that we could stamp the postcards that we made. 
And the image was of a profile of a American cowboy with the, you know, the like big, a Marlboro man. Yeah, mm. with the big brimmed hat. But the brim of the hat was a salute, a high Hitler salute. Mm-hmm. So the palm of the hand, the wrist and palm of the hand. <laughs> Sorry. What? Heil Hitler salute, not high Hitler. <laughs> Whatever. So we thought it was a perfect representation of manifest destiny, the concept of manifest destiny. Ah, it was brilliant. Yeah. In one image, he captured the whole right. concept of manifest destiny, right? And of course, another reason this all resonated is because we also wanted to re-examine preconceived attitudes through visual art about, for example, the concept of home. Yeah, right. Right. Remember, we we thought we were only going to put up the TP. It would be taken down in one day, but we would have a photograph of it. Yeah, and that that would represent the juxtaposition and the kind of rethinking that we were hoping would happen. Right. right. And of course, primarily, we wanted to commemorate the centenary of the Wounded Knee Massacre which is considered to be the end of the series of conflicts between U.S. troops and Indians known as the Indian Wars. And, of course, that, those wars the Indians decidedly lost, and which is still a national shame to this day that the United States has yet to reckon with. I mean, the whole scandal about Catholic schools abducting Native American children and killing them and throwing them in mass graves, which is a huge controversy now, finally now, in Canada, but now also in the United States. It's starting to be talked about in popular culture, like the Yellowstone series, 1923. Documentaries are being made. But this is not something people had reckoned with before. You know, it's Mm. just now starting. And... Back then, the concept that is so prevalent today, cultural appropriation, right? Back to that concept. And people's collective consciousness back then, 33 years ago versus now. Right. The phrase cultural appropriation was not in our or the general public's uh, lexicon then. You know, it would take almost 20 years until the term and and awareness it, it signified would reach popular culture. Yeah, it was it was first used barely, you know, in some academic spaces in the 80s, uh, mostly when they discussed colonialism and the relationship between majority and minority groups. Um, so it's really interesting to track the use of the term. And if you don't know about this, it's a fascinating resource. Google Ngram Viewer, and that's N-G-R-A-M. And you can put any phrase in there and a time frame that you want to know about, and it'll tell you, for example, the frequency of the term cultural appropriation from 1980 to the quote-unquote present, which is 2019, because, uh, you know, this, this is the use of the term in books. So I imagine it takes... Google a while to aggregate all that information. So the, the latest time frame is 2019 that that's available for. Right. And if you look at the chart, you see it's, it's basically f- flatline in the 80s, starts to rise in the 90s, 
and goes on a kind of general slope up to the year 2012. Yeah, first, first in 2010, where it actually dips again for a few years, or 2008 or so. Yeah, it, it dips a couple years in there, right yeah. at the end. But then in 2012, it shoots up, upward, straight. And, uh, you know, the term wasn't used until uh, 2009 in the New York Times. But yeah. then in 2012 is when the term jumped into popular culture. Right, and, and was that used. is because that year Victoria's Secret featured a model in an ad wearing leopard print lingerie while wearing a headdress, also known as a war bonnet, along with turquoise jewelry and fringe-adorned heels. And at the same time back then, Urban Outfitters had 23 products labeled as quote-unquote Navajo on their website, including uh, Navajo hipster panties. Whatever they'd look like. (laughs) In any case, a a few years later, uh, the Navajo actually sued Urban Outfitters, and and Urban Outfitters settled for an undisclosed amount. Yeah, so first it was fashion, but really on top of that came music. Musicians at the time were engaging in cultural appropriation. It became a hot topic, uh, partially due to the kind of incremental whitewashing, I guess you'd call it, of hip-hop. But mostly because the internet now was a way where those who could feel strongly about something could voice their opinion. Oh, yes. The uh, internet definitely lets people who feel strongly about something voice their opinions. So in the chart, you see a dramatic rise in the use of cultural appropriation. Yes. Uh, And it begins in 212, and then it goes straight upward to the present day like a roller coaster going up to its peak almost. So it wasn't then, what, 10, 11 years ago, that we started to feel like we needed to contextualize when two white people put up a full-size replica of a Lakota teepee in, well, an art project. It wasn't an art project strictly, but yeah. No, it was an action, right? Yeah, an action, right. But whenever we talk about our history, our theater history, uh, we talk about various projects. But as soon as we get to the teepee, it's all anybody ever wants to talk about, right? And, of course, we're still working in theater to this day. But what's changed is that a lot of our peers from back then, if not retired, they moved upstate, (laughs) Or they're doing other things, they're raising families things. and stuff, right? Yes. And um, so, well, I'll tell you, you know, there's a funny story about the Mermaid Parade oh, when we gosh. did it a, a few few years ago, yeah. where we tried to get the old gang together because we had so much fun before making a float for it. And this time we were going to make a float and a film. We made a good film. And a political on. action also in yeah. the Mermaid Parade. <laughs> right. And uh, so we contacted the old crew, and a couple answers were, well, nah, not me, but maybe my son or my daughter <laughs> would like it. Like, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> so in our recent projects, we, of course, reference our history. And whenever cultural appropriation has been hinted at, or not, it's usually not brought up directly, but it, it, loose, it, it almost, well, it exclusively comes from younger peers, many of them who weren't even born in 1990 when we did it. And uh, peers our age or slightly younger can contextualize their own 
individual journey yeah, toward they have their uh, own stories. A, awareness and appreciation of the, the cultural appropriation. You exactly, know? And, how, and how you finally arrive there and, yes, wake up, right? Right. But in general, these days when we talk about the teepee, we kind of give a shorthand answer um, before we tell the story that took place, which is realize that was then and this is now. Could we do this now? No. And we never would do this now. Yes. I mean, it's a shorthand answer because we had grown individually in our own awareness and sensitivity at pace with the rest of the culture. I mean, probably a little quicker because we were involved uh, peripherally in academia and we were in the art world. And so we probably progressed a little towards, you know, wokeness. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but now... Next is the question, what's the difference between cultural appropriation and cultural appreciation? And this is a question that was addressed and answered in, as, in editorials and so forth uh, as far back as 2012 as well. Right. And the answer holds up today, I think. Yeah. Uh, and the consensus was that appreciation is having a general interest in learning about a people's history, traditions, language, values, and way of life. Whereas appropriation is based on a superficial appreciation of a group and uses parts of that group's culture for commercial reasons. It is damaging because doing that ignores the experience of minorities and marginalized people. Yes, and I think that is a very good description and, like you said, still holds up. I think right? so, yeah. And when we erected the teepee, we clearly did it in appreciation not in appropriation. We delved deeply into Lakota history and researched the ghost dance religion that led up to the Wounded Knee Massacre. Uh, We visited uh, Pine Ridge when we took that road trip out west uh, to research all that history. And we're going to cover all this in another episode as well. And we did our best to educate ourselves and the visitors and the residents of the hill on that history, on the land, including the land that we were on, the land of the Lenape. And that is a phrase that you hear relatively often these days, you know, like in Zoom meetings or other kind of presentations. Uh, We are reporting here from the land of the Lenape uh, uh, in Manhattan or whatever. You know, you'll hear that, that kind of intro often and not back then, obviously. So today, when, you know, when we quiz our peers about this, uh, it's, for example, doing this podcast about that time, mm-hmm. um, the unanimous reaction is that we did what we did, which was erected a memorial. And uh, in fact, our podcast producer, who encouraged us to do this podcast in the first place, Untamed River Network, is Native American owned. Yes. And by the way, there still is no memorial to the Wounded Knee Massacre. No, there's a, you're right, there's not. Mm -hmm. Even out there, there's a marker for the cemetery, and there's a, it's funny because the the marker by the United States government says uh, Wounded Knee Battlefield. It doesn't, what the Native Americans want it to be called is the Wounded Knee Massacre. Massacre, right. So, um, Back then in 1991, it was uh, the same as it is now. 
in other words, back then, even the uh, Municipal Art Society and its publication, The Liv- Livable City, had an article entitled Memorials of War and Peace with a photo and a description of the teepee, highlighting it as one of the eight Manhattan memorials. Right, and that's the Municipal Art Society. Uh, which is a big deal. You know, Jackie O was on the board of that for like 20 years. <laughs> right. right. So, um, all right, so next time we'll talk about Native American reaction to the teepee back then, including the visit from the uh, American Indian Movement, AIM. Uh, I know we promised that for this episode, but the topic we covered here about how culture has progressed over our lifetime had to be covered including its ability to understand and empathize with a Native American struggle to preserve its culture, right? And it's central to what the teepee on the hill represented back then and what it represents today, 30-plus years later. Yeah, right. So I, I think we can end here, right? Yeah. That's it. All right. So thank you once again for tuning in. Right. Um, And if you like what you hear, don't forget to like, subscribe and click that bell so that you know when our next episode is coming out. Uh, Check out our website at thiefstheater.org and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at TP on the Hill. That's T-I-P-I on the Hill. And also, please feel free to write us um, at podcast at thievestheater.org. That's theater with an R-E. We would love to hear from you, especially about this topic, but really any topic, right? All right. right. Thank you. Thank you. Till next time. Thanks for listening. Bye.